Welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast, featuring in-depth conversations with executives, leaders, influencers, and journalists in this dynamic, high-stakes industry. Hosted by Craig Pickett, founder of Northstar Group, the boutique executive search firm for the aerospace industry. You'll learn how top aerospace executives are developing their people, competing for talent, overcoming challenges, and adjusting to industry trends to drive growth and profits. And now, let's join your host, Craig Pickett. Hey, welcome to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm Craig Pickett. Um, today, we've got uh, Brant Alfors with us. Brant is a partner in Bloomer DeVere Dalfors and one of the, the finer industry aerospace jet sales guys I've ever had the pleasure of meeting and, and just an all-around good guy too. So uh, thanks for being on today, Brant. Well, you're welcome. Nice to uh, talk to you again, Craig. What's, uh, so what's happening? You were just at the, uh, the Gulfstream um, Key Players Conference. What's happening in uh, business aviation? Well, there's a lot of things going on. Well, there's a lot of things going on. We're we're delighted and honored to be invited to that on a periodic basis. And uh, Gulfstream, like uh, you know, the all the the top OEMs are are really working hard to get their message out. To um, I, I would all say keep they call us key players. I think Bombardier calls us uh, influencers. But um, there are you know there's probably 10 or 20 30 you know top brokers around the world that have a, a significant influence on new and really high-end used airplanes and we're in that space so it's nice to be there a great networking opportunity and um you know they have a lot of things to talk about these days with the the uh, gulfstream 500 and 600 soon to be certified they're they're uh, manufacturing plants for those two airplanes are kind of up and running. I think they uh, acknowledged a big milestone on uh, on 650 deliveries not too long ago. So, you know, things are kind of rocking and rolling, uh, I think, in a positive way for Gulfstream at the moment. They certainly have the largest amount of new product uh, momentum of anyone out there because they, you know, they have... Um, 650 is now only what five years old and you've got these two new products that are uh, going to hit the market here from a delivery standpoint pretty soon so that they have a lot of new things to talk about how's the industry doing i mean um yeah 2008 we 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 definitely saw the uh saw a peak 9 10 11 we saw some um we saw some doldrums. What's uh, you've been in this industry for twenty five plus years as an aircraft sales executive? What's uh, what's you know where, what's the the long and short term look like? Well, I think it's interesting. I I, I have a philosophy, and I've talked about this a, a couple times. Last year at the Speed News Conference, I gave a, a presentation about you know I think where we've come. You know, we're we're coming out of really five very, very, very difficult years. I mean, the economy fell off the cliff in two thousand and eight, which was not relative to airplanes. It was a you know, it was a global uh, retraction uh, that was fueled by a lot of really, really bad lending. And you know, once kind of the dust settled, uh, everyone tried to figure out what's next. Where do we go next? How do we set our production? How you know what what is normal, and how soon will we get back to some sense of normal and in aviation you know everyone produces 
uh, everyone, sorry, um, you know, the engine manufacturers, the avionics manufacturers, the airframe manufacturers, a lot of them produce 10 and 20 year forecasts so that they can do production planning. And in 2009, there was a kind of consensus that the industry would sell and deliver 10,000 airplanes in the next 10 years and 15,000 in the subsequent 10 years for a 25,000 um, 20 year forecast. And we never, we really never got there. Those, that forecast, those forecasts every year for five years in a row kept tweaking down and tweaking down to the, to the uh, 10 year forecast at the end of 15 being less than 7,000 airplanes for the, for the next 10 years. And so consequently we had this period of, um, uh, bad forecasting, for lack of anything else. We, the industry was overbuilding. They kept reducing production little bits by little bits, never got up on that growth curve that they, they projected, which created a lot of whitetail inventory, which is not good for OEMs. Uh, it's not good for pricing stability. And, you know, that is what that is. But unfortunately, in, on the, the non um um, forecastable side of things, the industry got torpedoed with the what I say like to say the three wise men from Detroit that went to Washington with their hands out on their corporate jets and were not prepared to answer the question of how they got there. <laughs> and so, you know, then in addition to the economy falling off the cliff, now we had this political unpopularity uh, about aircraft ownership and and. And then you had the regime change in China, where um, a lot of wealthy people were were um, susceptible to corruption investigations if they were flaunting a lot of money and uh, and wealth. And so people in China said, "We don't want the airplanes. Get them out of here." Then we um, um, applied sanctions to Russia, so there was a lot of airplanes coming out of there. And then there was this kind of two, three-year delay for Europe to go through this retrenching um, and right-sizing that we did in the United States. So all of a sudden, what was in 2007 a, um, a, a distribution of about 50% North American, 50% the rest of the world became, the North America became a, a 80 to 90% of the market there, and there was just too many airplanes, which put a tremendous pressure on supply. We, the available inventory for sale went up to um, close to 14%. We had very, very um, popular airplanes to, uh, declining in value. What used to be um, 5 6% a year, they were declining 5 6% a quarter. Some went down as much as 10% in a quarter. And so it's just a really difficult period of time in that kind of 2013 through 16. And, and we saw it, we saw the signs of it starting to turn around at the, at the end of 15, um, or sorry, at the end of 16 and, and 17 proved to be a turnaround year, meaning that um, the, the depreciation, the rate of depreciation started slowing the uh, available inventory started slowing, uh, going down, and the days on market started going down. 
And, you know, you know, fast forward five quarters and, you know, we now have a, a available inventory less than 10%, which is starting to be more of a seller's buyer uh, market than a buyer's market. Prices have kind of stabilized. You have all the OEMs have finally gotten their production rates fairly close to what the demand is. And you see them slowly start to, to hold tighter on their pricing. Their backlogs are starting to move out a little bit. Um, so I think the, the, the corporate aircraft industry is starting to stabilize. Um, there's a few airplanes starting to go back to China now. Europe is, you know, it's not coming back fast, but I'd say the, the industry's kind of right-sized now, which is, which is good for everybody because you need a little bit of price stability. The last couple of years, buyers were rewarded by waiting. Now they're not being rewarded by waiting. Good airplanes uh, are going faster, and I think we're in a, in a much, much better place now. And in the short term, I think it looks very good. You know, there, there's a lot of discussion about just a general economic uh, correction. We're, we're 10 years now of positive economic growth without any correction. You know, it's inevitable, but, you know, the next year, year and a half looks stable and, and uh, starting to return to some normalcy. Yeah, from an economics standpoint or from a, an economist standpoint, you know, everybody, you, know, you think about inflation, you know, the perils of inflation, but, you know, the bigger fear is deflation and i think the whole business jet industry i mean that's that's basically what the whole business jet industry saw was a massive deflation which kept you know buyers on the on the side and uh, you ask a broker you ask a seller you know what's what's the value of their airplane and basically the answer is we don't know the, the value is what the next guy's willing to willing to pay for it. so um you know it's it's it's, it's a real lesson and just basic economics there. Is anybody having fun? I mean, are any of the uh, any of the sales guys, there's a lot of sales guys out there selling and sales girls out there selling jets. Is anybody having fun right now? Yeah, I would say it's a, it's definitely a, you know, it's a fun time when things are starting to pick up a little bit. You really are, you know, putting the deals together in a, in a more timely fashion. Um, you know, that, that part is wonderful. I mean, right now, if you, if, if you've got, we do a lot of acquisitions on in our business. So we're probably a fifty to sixty percent acquisition business, which is not traditional of a lot of the aircraft brokers out there. And it just it goes back to the roots of how the company was founded, and then and then that's been um, accentuated, I think, since I joined the firm, given the OEM background. But you know, we're telling our customers now, we spend a lot of time getting them educated and, and now getting them educated to the fact that when we find the right airplane, we need to move, you know, we need to move fast and at least, you know, tie it up so that we can do our due diligence and, and not willy-dilly around because the, the good airplanes aren't staying around much longer. So from that standpoint, it's great. If you're, if you're out trying to represent a, uh, a client to sell his airplane, you know, for the last couple of years, you know, you were always going back to them and going, our listing agreement's expired. Can we extend it, right? Because there's just seemed to be no no end in sight as to how long that airplane was going to sell. Now, you know, you get a good, you get a really good airplane and they're selling in in, uh, in short order. Um, so that part is fun, right? You get to see the results of your work, um, not making excuses for the market. Um, you can be a bit more uh, 
uh, direct and aggressive with your posturing of the airplanes. And, you know, so, yeah, I think people are having a lot more fun than, uh, than they were a couple of years ago. Uh, I guess the sellers are probably enjoying it more, too. It's kind of hard. It's a hard conversation to have with a guy whose airplane just took a 10 or $15 million hit. Yes, it is. Um, I don't care how rich you are. That, uh, that's a big number. Um, yeah. To say the least. Agreed. What's the next thing? I mean, you, know, you think about You look at Gulfstream. You know, the, the 500, the 600, the 650, you think about Bombardier with the new Global 7000 coming out, big jets. Um, Textron, Falcon Jet coming out with bigger jets. Is there too much focus on just range and size now? What's, the, what's new? What's, what's the next innovative product in business aviation? Well, you know, that's an interesting story. They're, they're, they've gotten very efficient, right? The airplanes are getting more efficient. What used to be a, a Mach 0.80 as a, as a minimum entry point uh, went to 0.85 when uh, Bombardier came out with the Global Express. And then uh, Gulfstream followed um, with the uh, uh, higher cruise speeds on the 450 and the 550, but now we've got 650s that, that can cruise at 9.0. You got a Global 7000 coming out that can cruise at 9.0. The new 500 and 600s are up there. So, you know, as you get these longer range airplanes and you, and you, you know, the difference between, you know, an 80 airplane and a 90 airplane, if you're talking about going, you know, New York to London, you know, can be an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. Um, and those are substantial. And those, so these airplanes are doing these trips faster and they're doing them with less fuel. Um, and less time, and so that's a that is a big draw. Um, I'm still amazed that how many the demand for long and ultra long range airplanes out there. When I was at Bombardier in the early days um, of the Global Express program, everybody was wondering, "My gosh, how many of these are we? You know, what's the market? Right? People develop an airplane program based on uh, you know break even." In, in normal times, you know, 300, 400 airplanes, maybe 450 airplanes. Well, Bombardier is just, it's, it's pretty close to delivering the 800th Global Express. You had, you know, seven to 800 G550s sold. You've got a couple hundred 650s now that have been sold. So, you know, there's clearly a huge demand for long range, uh, uh, big aircraft. But from my perspective, the, the we've created a, a, an interesting opportunity now. Um, there's the, the industry's got to backfill a little bit. There's too many gaps in the in the product offerings. And where what I'm talking about is that you know the Challenger 650 great airplane, but long in the tooth needs to be replaced. Um, and at least publicly, Bombardier's not announced the replacement for that airplane at this moment. Gulfstream last uh, October, September, October delivered the last G450. So there's uh, that space has been vacated. You know, the Falcon 900 is a great airplane, but it is such a niche airplane. You can count deliveries on two hands on an annual basis. So really, you know, what, what does the industry have? And the, and the G500 now is, you know, it's going to be a $45 million airplane you know, Mach 90, 
um, capable of, you know, 52 to 5,400 nautical mile range. So um, there's not an airplane short of, again, the, the Falcon 2000 LX, the, um, uh, the Falcon 900, which, which are very niche airplanes. Set them to the side for a second. There's not an airplane between a you know a twenty two twenty three million dollar G two eighty Challenger three fifty and a G five hundred at forty five million dollars. The industry is uh, the industry desperately needs a you know forty five hundred nautical mile range um, Mach eight five thirty two thirty four million dollar airplane, and it's not there right now. What about a Boeing, or not a Boeing business jet, but uh, what about the uh, supersonic business jet? Uh, it's an interesting you know, problem. There's a really market for it at $150 million or $100 million. There is definitely a market, and the, there, were no, there were a number of studies, and we, we are, we're an independent sales consultant for the, the, the folks at Arion, which are, you know, they're much further down the path than anyone else out there right now. I think it's really exciting. It, it's, uh, it's complex. Um, obviously, it's never been done before. You know, this airplane is now pushing 170 or 180 feet long. I mean, it, it adds some some interesting um, interesting things to think about. Are there enough people to buy a couple hundred of those airplanes? Yes. Um, will they accomplish the um, some of the um, boomless supersonic flight over? Uh, over land, I think they'll get there. I really do. Uh, I don't know if you saw in the in the um, Aviation International News the other day, NASA has been awarded a two hundred and fifty million dollar uh, contract to build a, a boomless technology supersonic prototype. Well, you know that just that just it further uh, endorses what the folks at Arion are doing. Um, Gulfstream folks won't talk about it, but you know. I'm sure that um, they, at least in their advanced design department, they think about it, right? Because whoever buys those air, whoever buys those airplanes are current, you know, going to be current Gulfstream 650 and Global 7000 kind of customers. I, I will tell you though that the part of the part of the when we've had a, a lot of conversations about the with the area on with uh, customers is that the. Guys that have a 9-0 big airplane with long range um, are, they're kind of go, wow, I've already got a 9-0 airplane, right? So to go, you know, 1.2, 1.4, it, it, I got to be able to do that where I'm going or it doesn't make as much sense as it probably did when people were flying around at 8-0 airplanes that, that wouldn't go that far. Yeah, no, I hear you. Let's um let's shift gears a little bit. Yeah, you and I saw each other at Corporate Jet Investor a while back, and yeah, you know, when I was there, the one thing I noticed that you know, the 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 theme was the OEMs really weren't making any money. A lot of the aircraft brokers were lamenting that they're they're suffering some pricing pressure. They're not making a lot of money. The MROs are saying we're not making money. Is it posturing or is nobody making money? Well, I think there's a few people that are making money, but I but I think uh, as an industry, I mean, we're if you look at if you look at uh, say Dassault, they're you know they overspent on the five X, and now they've got to recover that money. Um, the the 
you know, Bombardier is over budget on the 7,000 and the related C-Series business, you know, they had to take a $3 billion write down. So they've been struggling to make money as those airplanes get online. I think they'll start to make money. You know, Gulfstream, everybody just marvels, you know, they're 18% EBITDA, cranking out new airplanes, developing new airplanes. You know, they have a lot of, of uh, discipline and know how to make money making airplanes. So um, I don't believe Gulfstream's not making money. I do believe some of the other guys aren't making money as nuts or as much. Um, you know, on the brokerage side of the business, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are nuts. I mean, as an industry, we we operate at, at pennies on the dollar compared to what um, – commercial real estate brokers, real estate brokers, art brokers, you know, high-end car brokers. I mean, it's crazy, but, you know, anybody can just raise their hand and just, and, and say, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a jet broker. And um, so, yeah, we, we're, we're not the best at, at, at pricing discipline. We allow as an industry to, to operate it at, at low, low, low prices and, uh, but, but I'm not sure what the solution to that is, right? Because it's just a freewheeling industry. Anybody can sell a jet if they raise their hand and somebody gives them their jet to sell. And um, and they just look at it as marginal money. I mean, when, when, you, bring, when you bring a level of um, uh, professionalism and, you know, sales engineering talent and marketing talent into, into an organization that is a success-based uh, only organization, meaning kind of commission only, um, it, it merits, you know, it merits more than $50,000 a deal, right? Yeah. How did you, know, how, how do you, well, you and Mark, Mark Bloomer, and a couple of other similar companies, you know, um, have really raised the bar on the, uh, on the brokerage side of the house. I think uh, Mente Group, Bloomer, you know, yeah, Bloomer, DeVere's Dalfors, a couple others out there that have really done a good job raising the bar how are you, you know, how are you guys saying okay we're, we're what are you doing to differentiate yourself on the value side so you guys can get higher prices well i think you know some some deals we just choose to don't take right for one and um certainly word of mouth and referrals from happy customers helps a lot so we work very hard to um to execute very very well uh, we're engaged, I think, at a at a broader level, and that probably comes from um, being a, a little bit of the higher end of the market, coming from the OEM background. You know, we spent 20 years thinking about the world as opposed to thinking about what's happening just in Dallas, Texas, or what's just happening with, you know, King Air 200s. I think you just bring a, a little bit of a broader view to the, uh, to the market, and um, one of the things that we started when I joined the company is, you know, we produce uh, quarterly reports now on all the OEMs and the aftermarket within those companies. And, and it's part of that bringing a, a broader perspective. And I think the clientele see that sees that as, as a, you know, more professional approach and, you know, people that can kind of get the job done. So, you know, I mean, you made it to the top. I mean, obviously, at Bombardier, you were vice president of North American sales for quite a long time. You know, how did you make the transition? You know, you, you know the, you, a lot of resources behind you at Bombardier, then all of a sudden you made the transition to entrepreneurship. 
how'd you find that uh how'd you find that transition went for you well it was interesting um uh, kind of an entrepreneur at heart early on i was involved in a couple entrepreneurial uh, ventures um and you boy you do miss the 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 Tremendous resources of a very very large OEM. So you have to get uh, you have to get creative. Uh, we're, we embrace technology. We're looking at new ways to do what we do and, and provide the clients um, you know better information in a more efficient manner. So you're always working with that. I mean, I think you do have a when you when you manage a large sales force like I did. You know, you bring the same practices that you were doing within your own small little organization so you just become a little bit more efficient at it um i think for me the the uh what was so re-energizing was learning so much about other products right and i do believe that that you have to reinvent yourself to stay relevant throughout your career whether you're working for yourself or working for someone else you know certainly every uh, every couple of years and never stop learning and so for me i this was like drinking from a fire hose, you know, the basic fundamentals of selling and, and dealing with customers and understanding a lot of the products were, were very, um, were very same, but you get into the technological side of, of, um, you know, pre, pre buys and technical evaluations and overseeing a lot of that, which you just didn't, I never had to do on, on the new airplane side of things. Um, you know, I had to come up to speed fairly quick, but again, I, I was enthusiastic about learning that, that side of the business I have a great partner who we became partners because um, you know he had a very successful acquisition in sales business and you know we got to know each other for you know probably the last 10 years I was at Bombardier because you know I found him on the other side of the table representing clients buying airplanes and we had a um, very very similar philosophy as to you know what his value proposition was to the client and how he dealt with the client, how he dealt with the OEMs. And so it was a real natural fit for, uh, for us to join together. And it's been a wonderful relationship. Did you find making the transition from, you know, to entrepreneurship was, was a big shift in your mindset? Or did having Mark alongside you help you with it? I think knowing that Mark was there as a sounding board and working together on some deals helped to help a tremendous amount. Um, but I think really more than anything else, what was enthusiastic to me was, you know, I think after 35 years of being in this business and being involved in over, you know, uh, a thousand transactions during my time at Bombardier, um, I think I kind of know what it's important to work on when I get up in the morning, right? <laughs> and and um, not having decisions being made by committee and, and uh, second guessing what you're doing I, I feel like I was set free. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard, yeah, having done it myself, it's, it, it, it's an interesting transition. It takes about a year, I found, to get comfortable with it. But once you're there, you, you sort of look like you go, you, you'll, I'll never go back. Well, you start, you start saying, gosh, maybe I should have done this a few years sooner, right? Because you, you're having a lot of fun. The independence is wonderful. Customer relationships is wonderful. You know, uh, mentoring a couple of young people in our business to become successful in this business is, uh, is, uh, is very rewarding. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, we, we're dealing with the same stuff, but we're dealing with it on us on just, you know, kind of a micro scale compared to a, you know, a, a global, uh, 
conglomerate like, you know, Bombardier or, or Gulfstream or General Dynamics is, you know, we, we, we're, we're slowly rebranding our company away from Bloomer DeVere Golf Force to Jet Transactions. We were surprised when we bought the company that we, or that we formed the company that JetTransactions.com web domain was available. So we snagged that. And so in between working on deals, we're working on branding our company. We opened an office in Europe about uh, a year ago, and that's been a fun process to bring that online. We're looking at another office most likely in the Northeast. So, um, you know, it's fun, right? You see a direct relationship to what you're doing and, uh, and and the results of those activities. But it's very entrepreneurial because, you know, when, when you're in the middle of a deal, all that stuff kind of gets set to the sidelines. So you're, you're um, the, the fun part is you could be working on 20 different things simultaneously. And if you're, um, if you're not... Um, you're not a good multitasker. You're not going to do well as an independent business person on the on the, the aircraft brokerage side of the fence. Something to be said about you know doing the dishes and taking out the trash and answering the phone and all the other stuff too. So hey, look, let's. You've worked with a lot of sales guys and you've worked with a lot of them. Um, you've led a lot of them. How does an OEM sales executive you know reinvent himself? I mean, it's very hard when you're inside. Uh, you know, what is really a very fickle sales environment, selling to high net worth individuals. How do you, you know, how do you reinvent yourself? You know, is it, you know, even when you're in the organization, you know, you find yourself getting stale. You know, how did you coach your, uh, how did you coach your teams to do it? Well, I do, th- I do think I'm a big believer in, in technology. I think technology is, and, and, you know, the just really down the simple side of technology of, of, um, you know how we use our smartphones, how we integrate with things with our with our own customer database, whether it's something that you maintain on your own or whether it's a, a, a CRM system within the company like Salesforce.com. I think embracing that, making that te- technology work for you, um, I think keeps you fresh and interesting. When you look at ways to to reinvent yourself, you know you just can't be too smart in this business, right? In terms of technology. Um, of the airplanes, the sales process, the technology of your competitors, competitors' airplanes, and it's it takes us the the most successful guys. They're very sophisticated, right? They they really understand um, not only the airplanes, um, but they understand the customers, how the customers thinks, how how these airplanes are operated, so that they can carry an intellectual conversation with the management company, the pilot the director of maintenance, as well as the, uh, the principal and the CFO of the company. So I, I think you're always learning um, and, and paying attention to what is affecting your business, right? I, I, you know, the, ta- the new tax law, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a good sales guy in this business, you know how that's affecting what you're doing and whether that's going to cause your clientele to, um, um, to want to move quicker or slow down the, the acquisition process. So I, I I think it's just really staying um, relevant in what's going on around you. So what's the most important thing? The guy that's buying the business jet is a high net worth individual, you know, powerful corporate executive. You know, if you're selling to a high net worth individual, what would your advice be to people out there who are, who are doing that? Well, have a direct relationship if at all possible and not deal with, 
you know, not not have to deal with a lot of middlemen. Now, the best salespeople are able to do that. It's not an easy thing to do is to develop that relationship. Um, but if, if you're dealing directly with the principal, you really have to know your stuff. You've got to be direct. You've got to be accurate. You have to be concise and, um, and, and very accurate about what you're doing. So I, I really always encourage people to you know, try the best that they can to have the, have a direct relationship. That's really, really, really important. So how do you handle the chief pilot when he wants to get in the middle of the deal? Uh, well, he's part of the process, right? And, and, um, and he should be part of the process. Uh, I, you never try to cut him out. You, you just treat him as part of the team. I think that's kind of the big, everybody thinks so, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the executive assistant. When I coach other executive recruiters, my answer there is the executive assistant is the COO to the CEO. Literally. Yeah, no, no, they're part, they're part of the team and everybody can, everybody, um, you know, now the key is, is you're going to succeed if everybody on their team wants you to succeed, right? If not, if not, you've got people throwing hang, hang grenades at you in the background and that doesn't, uh, that doesn't help the process. So um, you've got to, the, the, the high net worth individual develops the team that he thinks is important to him and it's your job to figure out how to deal with them effectively and, and uh, leverage all of their skill sets and enthusiasm towards um, the, uh, the airplane operation, replacement, purchase, wherever they fit in the, uh, in the cycle. Well, that's part about being a good salesperson is making everybody feel included. Yeah, absolutely. Like part of the deal. Absolutely. Probably not too much different than your business, right? Well, and, you, and when you start to get blocked, you know, when somebody starts to, you know, put some barriers in your way, it's, it's sort of your job as a sales executive to figure out how to either reduce the barriers or eliminate them altogether and, and put things in. If you can't do that, then, you know, maybe you need to be doing something else. Well, absolutely. Well, sales is a great profession. I mean, sales is helping people connect and, and, uh, um, it, it's not about getting a sale and collecting a commission. It's about helping people get what they need um, in the most efficient, professional manner. And it's a it's a very rewarding profession. I, 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 the you know, there's a lot of you see a lot of you know, you go to LinkedIn or some of the business trades, and there's a lot of alignment towards sales executives. Should they be you know, should they be rewarded for their success or should they just be salaried or how do you compensate them and, and you know, quite frankly should their mindset be I want to go hunt and kill or I just want to help customers um, it's a challenging job and it's an important job and I think you know a lot of the the you know, the era moving forward is sort of diminishing the the value of a really good sales executive and a good team uh, you know from from my standpoint I'm even seeing that a lot. In our industry, I see a lot of uh, attitudes out there that these these jets just sell themselves. Um, I have a little bit of a different opinion about that. You, you, tell me your thoughts. Okay. Uh, I can tell you they don't sell themselves. <laughs> from, well, at least from thirty five years of experience, I've never seen uh, I've never seen them sell themselves, so to speak. Especially you know, this it's a horribly competitive business, right? It's very high end. Um, if you if you lose a sale in this business, your next chance to make it up is somewhere between ten and 
in uh, or seven and ten years down the road. So um, it's not a high volume opportunity. So the good the good salespeople they are on it. Um, they're engaged, and and quite honestly, that's why I think the the uh, the advisory the consultative uh, part of our business is so important because to weed through a lot of information to, to crystallize it in a manner that is beneficial to the ultimate aircraft uh, purchaser. Cause obviously if you only have a, a um, one type of airplane to sell, that's what you think everybody needs. And, and that may not necessarily be the case. Who's really doing it right. I mean, you see the industry from a, you know, a God's eye view. Who's out there really just knocking it out of the park, doing it right? You know, from a manufacturer standpoint, you mean? From manufacturers, from a sales team standpoint, who's impressing you right now? Uh, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a challenging question, right? Because, I mean, we have four, four big players. You've got Embraer, you've got um, – Gulfstream, Dasso, and Bombardier, and, and I'll tell you, they all do a they, they do a great job with products. Uh, they all do a great job with product support. You know, thank goodness that we have a lot of transparency now in that. Um, you know, on the product support side of things, you know, when you have when you have um, you know ProPilot and AIN doing annual surveys that have been going on now for fifteen years, it shines a pretty bright light on on uh, product support. I mean, because of that, you know, we've got mobile repair, all the OEMs have mobile repair teams. They got jets flying around uh, spare parts and, you know, they're very engaged and, you know, I'm, there's always somebody that's going to be number one and somebody number two and somebody number three, but, you know, are you really going to argue how much, how much difference is the product support rating? You know, if you have a 9.1 versus a 9.4, right? I mean, they're all doing, a, uh, a, a good job and striving to do better every year. So, you know, product, product development, they're all doing well. You know, some people do better at other things, but I, I don't think I want to roll anybody under the bus here. Um, <laughs> no, 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 we're not rolling anybody under the bus. Yeah, because, because quite honestly, they all, they all build very, very good airplanes. Um, they all finish them very well. They support them very well. And, um, you know, and, and we're we're the benefactor of of, a, of billions of dollars over the last twenty years that have been poured into a new product development. The the best quote I think I ever heard um, was from a longtime industry executive, and he just looked at me and said, "There are really no bad airplanes. They're all great airplanes." When you look at a Gulfstream, a Falcon, an Embraer, a, a Citation. They're all fantastic products. And, and I think that's one of the challenges of the industry is that everybody makes a great product. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's like Michelin star restaurants all on the same street. Everything is good. There's you know, the, the, which is best for you, the one that you like the most. And maybe that's kind of the answer, right? Well, I think there is, so, you know, once you get past, does it, you know, does it meet the mission? Does it, you know, can you get in and out of the field you need to, or can you, go to Hawaii with eight passengers if that's the mission without a wet footprint, whatever the kind of requirements are. Um, yeah, there's not, any, there's not really bad airplanes. Um, 
you know, they've done really well because people spend a lot of money to develop them. Well, I mean, it's billions of dollars and thousands of people and a lot of resources. And, and, and where the industry is come, I mean, the products have all just, uh, I mean, they're just amazing now. And, well, they've, they've always been. How about Learjet? You ever going to see, you going to see another Learjet or is that brand going to kind of just fade? Well, unfortunately, the whole lower end of the market is, is challenged. Um, I personally think it's, uh, you know, if they can keep it going at, at um, you know, 20 to 30 airplanes a year, it'll just kind of lop along if it gets, you know, much. And they seem to be at that kind of rate now, maybe 18 to 20. It gets below 12. It just absolutely makes no sense to, uh, to keep it going. Unfortunately, you know, it's not a segment of the market that merits, you know, $800 million to develop a new small airplane when there's not a lot of market for smaller aircraft. So I don't know, difficult, uh, that's a difficult one. I, it's, it's such an iconic, you know, wonderful brand. I would hate to see it go away because it's kind of, it would be like, you know, cutting off your, you know, one of your toes, right? It's just the foundation of, of aviation being the first, you know, uh, jet out there. And, um, but it's just not a space where there's a big market and it's not a cheap airplane to build being a part 25 airplane. And, you know, you just, you know, a company like Bombardier doesn't need to build airplanes that they're losing money on. Um, so I think that's a, I think it's a long-term challenge, right? The, the, the concept of the brand being, Everything from a Learjet to a global. When Bombardier bought it, started to develop the or finished developing the Lear 60, started to develop the 85, doing 75 on top of the 45. You know, strategically back then it made a lot of sense. I, there's just not a market for those really, not a big robust market for small expensive airplanes right now. Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a blog on that a while back. It's like has the last light jet been designed? Um, and my guess is from a clean sheet, probably yes. It's hard to make money selling airplanes at five, six, seven million dollars or less. Um, yeah. cost things like yeah. that. Yeah, and the Learjet. I mean, they can't. Um, I, I I think they can't make that without a uh, um, you know on a cost basis without probably a nine to 10 in front of it. So, you know, that's an expensive airplane. Yeah, no doubt. So we're coming up on about 45 minutes here. One last question for you. Are you, are you bullish on the market or are you a little bearish? What's, uh, what's, what's Brad's eight ball? If he shakes the eight ball. No, I'm bullish, I'm bullish on the market going forward for the foreseeable future. Uh, we finally got out of this, this horrific, slide of decline of values i think it's going to be fun for the next couple of years because it's going to be a neutral to a to a bias towards a, a seller's market which is which it hasn't been there for you know gosh a long long time the new tax law is um bringing people to the table that weren't at the table before i don't think we're going to you know it's not going to be a hockey stick kind of a recovery but i think we're in a nice a very nice place going forward for private aviation in, in, uh, in terms of aircraft sales and transactions going forward for the foreseeable future. I'm bullish. Awesome. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear that. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it'll be good for the industry and everybody. So 
Hey, thank you for uh, thanks for taking some time to be here with us today. Absolutely. Craig, nice to nice to do it. I'm glad to hear things are doing well for you, and um, uh, wish you all the best for the rest of the year. Thank you. Stay uh, stay in touch. Let me know how we can help. Thanks, Craig. All right, Brad. Talk soon. Yeah.